This is the This Is Gonna Hurt podcast with Jay Gordon Duncan. Our sermon text this morning comes from Psalm 90. Prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth, the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. You return man to the dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hand and establish the work of our hands upon us yes establish the work of our hands and the grass withers and the flowers fade but the word of god stands forever if you are on the podcast or watching live uh, welcome to evident grace fellowship my name is gordon the pastor here and we are going to take one specific sunday uh, to look at what it looks like to plan for a new year what does it look like for a christian to enter into the new year uh, Jeremy did a great job of setting those things up with the time of repentance, talking about making our plans and then committing them to the Lord for His wisdom and His will. But what I want to talk about in preparation is transitions. Uh, I'm reading a book by Brendan Bouchard right now, and he spends a good bit of time talking about how we handle transitions. Uh, in it, he talks about our day. So think about it in a minute. Uh, when you wake up to the first time you speak to a human being, there's a transition. For some of that, that requires coffee or, or running or whatever the case may be. And there's some transition from when you're groggy to the point in which you're coherent. When you drive to work or if you take the kids to school, that's a transition moment for you as you are maybe preparing yourself or maybe not. When you get to wherever you're going, you, your kids or you, you're there and maybe you've thought about how you want to be present in that moment. Uh, when you're at work, perhaps you're going from a phone call to an email or you're going from one specific job to another. Uh, on your way home, you have an opportunity to sit in your car to prepare your hearts and ask yourself, uh, who do I want to be when I walk in the door? Do I want to be a person with energy and be present? Or am I a person who's going to bring in conflict that I've carried over from the last moment? And the book encourages us. He says, you know what, we spend actually more of our day in transitions than we do doing anything else. And how wise we would be to just take seconds, or maybe even a minute in the midst of those, and just ask ourselves this question. How present do I want to be? What's required of me in this situation? How much energy do I have? Uh, For the Christian, if we took those moments for opportunities of prayer, a reminder of a scripture, a reminder of God's graciousness to us, we might enter into those moments more present and more faithfully. 
Uh, I've been thinking about uh, transitions a lot for the sermon. I love the New Year's time. I love goal setting. I love those kinds of things. And so I got to think about transitions, and I was like, where are opportunities where people have handled them on a large-scale well, and where have they been handled poorly? So again, I find a podcast the other day, and the podcaster gives us what I think is one of the all-time worst transitions. When Netflix popped up, their main competitor was Blockbuster. Now, some of you may not know what a Blockbuster is, so I need to give you an idea of what a blockbuster is. If you wanted to watch a movie just even 10 or 15 years ago, you went to Blockbuster to rent a DVD or a VHS. And the outer rim was the new movies, and the larger inner portion was the old movies that you could pick out. And so you would go, and you would pick out your movie, and it might be there, and it might not, and then you would go home and watch your movie, and then if you didn't return it in a day or two, they would find you largely. And then Netflix popped up. Now, for those of you who don't know, Netflix wasn't always on your computer. You used to have to go online and get, sign up for a queue, and they would send you one to three movies in the mail. And then you would watch them and then send them back. There was no late fee. And then when they got it, they would send you the next movie. So Blockbuster at first realizes, hey, we've got some challenge from this upstart Netflix. And so they did an internal survey of what they felt like they needed to change or whether or not to take Netflix seriously. And so this is the truth. There were three points on their internal survey about how to handle the conflict. Their judgment was, we're going to be fine. By the way, there's two blockbusters left in the world, and they're both in Alaska. But I'll let you know that didn't go very well. So their first point, why they were going to do fine, was they said people really like to hold the cases in their hands and look on the back and read about what movies are. They're like, that is a real advantage. Because you can't do that. You don't have that tactile kind of response online. We've got that advantage over Netflix. This is the wording they used. Their second point was the serendipity of perhaps bumping into a friend or neighbor. Like there's a community experience when you go to Blockbuster. Hey, you're going to watch that movie. It's really good. Or don't watch that one. I want to watch it next. They said people just love the community aspect of Blockbuster. We're going to be fine. And their third strong point for why they were going to be fine is that people like to, buy, like to buy popcorn when they walk out. It's like a movie experience that you get to buy popcorn. If any of you remember, their popcorn was grossly overpriced. And so with that, they said, we are going to be fine. And just a few years later, they were completely gone. They misjudged the transition primarily because they misjudged themselves. They weren't willing to be honest about their competition or what was going on. And the, uh, the point in this podcast was what they really didn't realize is that what people like is to lie in their bed and go, Beep. that's what people like to do. That's the advantage of Netflix over Blockbuster. So I began thinking, well, are we good, are we good at judging transitions? Like, do we do an honest evaluation of our hearts and our circumstances and as best we can, the people around us when we are going through some sense of change. Because if we don't do that, we will default to probably a sense of arrogance and overconfidence. We will forget to exclude the Lord in our plans, and we may very well head into a worse situation if we had not handled it well. Now, like you said, I, like I said earlier, I love the new year. I love getting my, little, getting my planner out and writing down my plans and those kind of things. But I've spoken with some of you, and some of you have expressed concern. Like, should Christians actually make plans. 
And I'm, I think it's a valid question. It is. I think it is. Because we trust the sovereignty and the power of God. And the old joke that's not biblical that says man plans and God laughs. And there's a sense of that sometimes. But what I want to do is I want to share a couple of scriptures before we jump into our larger text that guide us about whether we should make plans as a Christian. And the first will come from the book of James. Let me read James 4 to you. Come now, you who say... Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now this passage is not rebuking anyone for making a plan. The rebuke is making a plan without a proper consideration of who God is and who we are. There's an arrogance in the first plan. I'm going to go do this, and I'm going to make a lot of money. What's not considered is to say, but God, you are eternal. I am finite. So I'm going to attempt to go do this as you will. So it's not a rebuke of making plans. It's a rebuke of our heart as we actually make plans. Proverbs 6, one of my favorite verses from summer camp. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise without having any chief officer or ruler. She prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. Clearly a plan to say, one, don't be lazy. And two, uh, make an honest assessment about what needs to happen in the future. And as much as you can in putting your hand to it, be faithful. So there is a sense, and it's a larger study, but there is a sense in Scripture where it says it is okay to make plans, but you need to understand your dependency on an eternal God. So as we begin to think, well, how are we going to make plans for the next year? I was searching for Scriptures, uh, not to support my point or to buffet any opinion I have, but to say, where have we seen in Scripture someone who is facing an uncertain future? And then how did they approach it? And we're not going to end this by saying, go be like that person. We're going to end this by saying, how should we see God in the midst of an uncertain future? And then rightfully, we order our lives towards that end. So here's our big picture question. We're going to try to answer this question. How does a Christian plan for a new year? Here it is. And I think we're going to find three answers to that question in our text today. One, we need to purposely praise God. In your planning, you need to praise God. Two, you need to repent over the sins of the past year. An honest assessment. And three, make plans and offer them to the Lord. It's very simple. Praise, repent, and then make plans and commit. Now, we're going to look at Psalm 90. Matt just read that for us. And I need to give us all a context for what's going on in Psalm 90. Moses has been a faithful leader over the people of God. He's gone to Egypt and he's declared that the people who were enslaved under Pharaoh were God's people. And through trials, he ultimately was able to lead the people out of slavery to reformulate the people of God according to his plan with Abraham. They go through, they cross the Red Sea, the enemies of God are crushed, and then the people of God are headed towards the promised land. God promised Abraham. I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people, and I'm going to give you a land. And that was a central point of the identity of the people of God. We are in a relationship with God, and he's going to give us a land. And that's where the people are headed. Now, Moses has been leading an incredibly complaining 
painful people. They complain about everything. In fact, when it goes bad, they say things as silly as, God, it would have been better if we had remained slaves in Egypt than to be out here. And Moses is tired. He's a weary leader. Knowing that the end of his ministry is coming, but knowing also he has a great desire to see the promised land. And so what happens right before Psalm 90 is a very significant moment. There's a drought, and the people once again start complaining. We're thirsty. Where is God? Has he abandoned us? And Moses is done. God, in his graciousness, though, promises the people that they will have water. And it's through Moses' headship and leadership. He says, Moses, I'm going to give these sorry, complaining people that I love, I'm going to give them water. Here's what you need to do, Moses. There's a rock, and I want you to command that rock. It requires faith for Moses. I want you to command that rock, and water is going to flow out of that rock. And Moses is so angry with the people that instead of speaking to the rock, he strikes it with his staff. God is gracious. Water flows. The people receive the water they need, but unfortunately, their sin and Moses' sin leads to this declaration from Numbers 14. God says, And your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness, until the last of your dead bodies lie in the wilderness. According to the number of days in which you spied out the land forty days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity forty years. And you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness, they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. Moses and the people of God have wandered, and they're on the way to the promised land. But their sin and Moses' sin had reached to such a point that God says, this generation, you will never step foot in the promised land. It'll be another generation. It will not be you. Now, we're now ready to look at Psalm 90. Forgive the long intro, but it's what's necessary to understand it well. Ask yourself, if you were Moses, if you were a leader of a people and had been perhaps the only faithful one, in that moment when your anger finally reached the point and you struck that rock, can you imagine then what your emotions would be if God said, you and these people, you're never getting in. Can you imagine what your thoughts towards God might be? After all of that work and that faithfulness and the bearing of the complaints of the people, you might say, all I did was strike a rock. But we know from this, and God knows his heart, that there's much going on. Moses is facing as an uncertain future as possible because he's been walking around going promised land, promised land, and now he knows I've got to wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. That brings us to how do we plan for an uncertain future. And again, the idea here is don't imitate Moses. The idea here is follow the faithfulness of God in the midst of it. Here's what we can do. Let's purposely praise God. Let's see it from Moses. Verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in our generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. This is a response of faith that if I could ever muster in my life, I would be overwhelmed and thankful. 
God just said, you can't have the promised land. And Moses said, you are our dwelling place. Let me put that in our language. In the midst of all that, what Moses just said was, you are better than the promised land. You are better than any earthly, tangible thing I've ever wanted. That land looks beautiful. You're the dwelling place, God. You are the land that will give my heart satisfaction. Not that. Was the promised land good? It was wonderful. Excuse me. It was an amazing blessing, a tangible gifting from God. It would have been amazing. The heart would have rightly wanted it. But when it was taken away... Moses said, but God, you're better than that desire of my heart. You're better than anything I've ever wanted. It does our hearts right to take a moment to wrestle with even the good things of which move and motivate our life. A status at work, an appearance, a relationship, a physical possession. Some of those things may very well be good. Some of them may very well be sinful. And we spend much of our lives striving for them. Some of them rightfully so. But as we chase them, and as we live with a sense of disappointment because they either elude us or will never be ours, the right response is for us to look to God and say, but you are better than that. God, you are better than the world's best thing. You are better, God, than my heart's best desire, you. What that means in a true act of praise is that we could live with a contentment no matter what the circumstances are. Whether we receive the desires of our heart, where we don't receive them, whether we are disappointed, whether we are disillusioned, This manner of praise is what fixes our heart. God, you are better than that thing. You are better. Moses was not going to enter into the promised land. Now, we don't live with such certainty. Rarely we do. There are times in relationships or perhaps circumstances where we might say, I'm never going to have that, perhaps. But most of the things we chase, we chase because we still think they're within our grasp. In the things that are good and right and biblical, I would say then pursue them with a commitment to the Lord for his will, but with the sense of, but God, you are better than whatever it is I desire. Look at verse 3. You return, man, to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. Praise is always an act of humility. Praise is always rightly seeing God and rightly seeing ourselves. Moses can in this moment say, I am but dust and you are eternal. And since you are eternal and wise and good, and all of us are going to come and go, like in a moment, like a blade of grass, Moses is able to say, then in humility, you're my best thing. In humility, you have greater wisdom as to what I should have and not have. 
In humility, you alone are good, and any goodness I have would only come from you. Friends, as we approach 2018, none of us will be in Moses' shoes. But every turning of a calendar page brings with us uncertainty. And with any uncertainty, the human heart moves towards dread. Now, the optimists say, I can't wait. It's going to be incredible. The pessimist says, it's going to be awful. And the realists are all closeted pessimists. Either way, we approach the new year. The return to school, the return to work patterns, the return to a cleaned house, or at least the Christmas stuff goes up. Whatever the normalcy is you hope to seek in the next few days, we return to it with a sense of praise. You are better than whatever it is I chase this year. And in humility, you alone are good and eternal. So whatever you may bring is the best. How do we plan? We plan by praising. We also plan by getting into the weeds and getting into the difficult stuff. Repent over the sins of the past year. Moses had some repenting to do, did he not? The people had repenting to do. Look at verse 7. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. Here's what I want to offer to you so we can approach this as best as I can see biblically. What Moses is offering here is not what's called self-flagellation. He's not beating himself up to assume that he's properly punishing himself for his sins. He's not beating himself up so as to say, I'm awful, I'm awful. Moses is very clear and understands that he is sinful and humble. What he is doing is teaching us the proper posture towards God in light of our sins. God, sin angers you. Sin is cosmic treason, a desire for us to sit upon the throne of our lives. And he portrays this vivid, vivid image of our sins are before you in the light of your presence. That imagery of saying the sins that are secret and hidden have been placed between you and me, God, and a light switch has been turned on. So that when I stand before you in your holiness, my sin is clear. Which is always the case. Sin is never hidden from God. And the human deceives itself because as we attempt to hide our sin, we assume it's hidden from everyone else. The public sins are most difficult anyway. The private one, we think we've got those properly covered. But Moses recognizes that those aren't hidden from God. He recognizes that before God, sin angers him. That it properly angers him. Look at verse 9. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 and even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. 
Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Moses rightfully says, God, our sins are before you. In the light of your presence, they cannot be hidden. And once again, he offers the same thing he did in the first portion. And you are eternal. And we are finite. We measure 70 or 80 days to perhaps these days, perhaps a little bit longer. And we say, that's a long, good life. And I think in our perspective, rightfully so. But before a holy and infinite and eternal God, what happens is we overinflate and exaggerate the striving of a day or even a year. And Moses is saying, no, I need to recognize that there's precious few days. And then I have 70 or 80 years to account for. And I need to properly recognize before you that my sin angers you and that they're before the light of your presence. And so, friends, we would not approach sin in the same way if we lived with a constant recognition that it is outward and visible before God. I don't offer that to you to shame you. I don't offer that to you to increase your guilt. I actually offer that to you to inhibit you. To give your heart a prohibition not to sin. Because God is good and gracious and eternal, yet we are often so flippant in our sin, assuming that it's hidden. What are these hidden sins that I talk about? It could very well be jealousy of someone whose life seems easier, someone who seems to have more money, to be healthier, to have friendships that we don't have. It might very well be the lust of the eyes, the sinful lust of looking at another person, or even perhaps the sinful lust at looking at a possession. It could be covetousness. They don't deserve that. They're an awful person. They shouldn't have that. It might be bitterness, God. How could you bring this into my life? How could you do that? It could be a sinful impatience with a spouse or a child or with God. All of our outward sins originate in the heart. And Moses is rightfully showing us to see those in the light of God's presence. Moses needed to repent over his sins. And when he sees 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, he also sees, but you know what, God, it's just but a day. You're eternal. Friends, as we approach a new year, I encourage you greatly, do the difficult work. Take time of silence in meditation pen and paper, whatever the case may be, trustworthy asking of a friend. And approach these next days with an honest confession and repentance of sin so as to remove the baggage that we seem for some reason so joyfully carry over and over again. How do we approach the new year? Well, we need to praise God. We need to repent over the past years. And then we need to make some plans and offer them to God. We need to make some plans and offer them to God. Look at verse 13. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. God has not departed from his people, but Moses rightfully feels a break in intimacy with his God. Because a sin such as this and continual sin makes our heart feel as if God has gone away. 
Moses is crying for a reestablished intimacy with his heavenly father. Return, have pity on us. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. What was the pattern of the people in the mornings with Moses? Do you know? Well, they needed food, right? They needed to eat. And God fed them every morning by giving them what's called manna. Manna was like a, a coriander bread, coriander substance. I don't quite know what that is other than some cotton thing with seeds in my brain. I'm not quite sure. And they weren't allowed to save it. You could go gather it in the morning. You could eat it. But if you tried to save it overnight in a jar, it would spoil. And God wanted them to have a daily dependence. Because if they could save it, then the next morning they wouldn't go out and look and see if God had been faithful. That's the pattern of how God cared for his people under Moses' leadership. But what Moses prays for here is not for manna every single morning. Not for the sustenance that his body needs. What he prays for, he says, God, let me start every morning and just give us your steadfast love. Make your steadfast love my meal. Make your steadfast love the sustenance that my body needs. Give us that. You can see what continues to happen with Moses. Every physical thing his body needs, he keeps telling himself, but God is better than it. There's the land, but God, you're the dwelling place. You've given us food in the morning, but give us your steadfast love. All those things are important, eating and a place to be. But Moses' posture is, but God is better than that. And so for us, as we begin to make plans for the next year, God is going to do these things. It is that we're often not aware of it. You could even fashion it in this way. Dear God, make me aware of your steadfast love each and every morning. Dear God, have pity. Return to me. Be intimate with me, dear God. Verse 15, make us glad for as many days as you've afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Father, for as many difficult days as you give me, make me glad. If you are going to make the remainder of my life difficult, God, just make me glad in the midst of it. This is a gladness in who God is. Gladness from the Lord is a recognition that he has gifted it. It's not necessarily from a circumstance, though God may very well be gracious and give it to you. He's just saying, listen, if we're going to wander in the desert for 40 years, then just make me happy for 40 years. Make me joyful for 40 years. For you, as you look at the next year, Father, if I'm going to go through this difficult circumstance for my family next year, just make me joyful in it. If I've got to raise this kid, make me joyful. If I've got to be married to this person, make me joyful. If I've got to go back to that workplace, just make me joyful. If I'm going to endure sickness, make me joyful. If I'm going to work in the church, just make me joyful. Father, give me a joy that comes from you. Verse 16, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Be present and work among us. Do great things in my house. Do great things in my workplace. Do great things in my church. Show yourself. I love it. It's not a show yourself as if, God, you need to prove yourself. It's show your character in your power among us. And we'll close with these verses. So let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. And establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work 
of our hands. The establishment of the work of your hands by God. It's his enabling, excuse me, enabling you to do whatever he's called you to. So whatever God is calling you to in each area of your life, then pray, God, enable me to do it. Establish the work, and may your favor be upon me. Now, God's favor may be, and will always be, excuse me, his grace poured out to you. You will always receive that favor from God as you have faith in him. He may pour out a physical favor, health, vitality, money, wealth, whatever those things may be, those things we pray for. He may. And that is up to the wisdom and grace of God. But he will always pour out his favor in terms of his grace and mercy to you through Jesus Christ. So that's it. You make your plans. You commit them. Next year, I would like to do this. I'd like to do this with my health. I'd like to do this with my finances. I'd like to do this with the church. Father, I'd like to do those things. But please pour your favor out on us and establish the work of our hands. So as we make a plan in our life, in our family, in our church, we just say, Father, pour out favor. That means we're saying, let us know your mercy and grace in everything we're doing. If you would grant us the favor of the fulfilling of this desire, thank you. But just be with us. Establish the work of our hands. Enable us to do the things you've called us to. It doesn't exclude the right and hard work that we are called to to prepare in the areas that God has gifted us in our life. No. Do the right and hard work in preparation. But in humility, recognize that God is better than every single thing that you would like to do. And that His presence and His favor is what we can hope for more than any other thing. And then we wait for the grace of His will to see whether He establishes it. Let's move ourselves to the answer to every big picture question. If you're here for the first time, we end each sermon in this way. We repeat the big picture question, and then we give a truth, an application, and an action. The truth is an answer of our big picture question. The application is a way in which we might live in light of that truth, and an action is the sort of go and do this week so that we know how to put these things into place as we live before God. Our big picture question was, how does a Christian plan for a new year? And our three answers were, of course, purposely praising God, repenting over the sins of the past year, and make plans and offer them to God. Uh, To make that succinct, here's our truth. Uh, Planning for a year begins with praise, moves towards repentance, and then culminates in a prayerful offering of your desires to God. Whatever you are facing or hoping Begin with praising God. Recognize that he is better than anything you might want, even if it's a good thing. Move towards repentance. Find areas in your life that you know that you've either not repented of or you are holding on to tightly that you're not willing to even admit. And then move into planning. Offer those desires to God. Trust his sifting of his will and your desires. Application, let's plan for the next year knowing that God graciously forgives your sins and will bless you with grace as you plan for 2018. As you go forward, he's going to bless you with grace, which means you are going to sin and mess up, and so am I. And he's continuing to be gracious to you. And then we make these plans, and he's going to bless us with grace as we try to live those things out. Finally, encourage us, my friends, to pray for God's favor. In the establishing of the work of your hands in 2018, there's nothing wrong to pray for God's favor 
if we see good, godly men and women praying for God's favor. When we read in Scripture, we also read that God takes great joy to pour out favor on his children. So we pray for it. Know that favor is always the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ, and at times is the establishing and the gifting of the things you want. Let's pray for that and for the establishing of the work of our hands as we end our sermon and move towards a time of praise. Let's bow our heads. Father, our day is like a thousand, a thousand as if a day, but yet, Father, you have established day and night. You've established the cycles by which we live. So, Father, we now are faced with the end of one year, the beginning of another. Father, you have been faithful in every single moment of 2017, never failing us. But yet, Father, we have had wonderful moments of obedience and thanks, and we've had many moments of struggle and sin, lack of faith. Father, pour out favor on us. Pour out the favor of Jesus Christ. Establish the work of our hands. May we go forward in great confidence that you will neither leave us nor forsake us. Your grace will be brand new every single morning. And will we be joyful in whatever you might grant to us. In Jesus' name, amen.